Our reading for this morning is Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6, 7, and 8. It'll be on page 193 of your Pew Bible, the Red Pew Bible in your seat. Let's first have a prayer. Father in heaven, we approach your throne this morning asking you to fill our hearts with the knowledge of your will and with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We pray this in order that we may live a life worthy of you, Father, and may please you in every way and bear fruit in every good work and to become what you would have us to become. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our beloved Savior, and all the God's people said, Amen. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6, 7, and 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Thanks, Bob. Well, Happy New Year again. Uh, as you look ahead to 2015, do you have any goals or aspirations for 2015? We often make New Year's resolutions around this time of year. I thought I would share with you the top 10 New Year's resolutions for 2015. Number 10, get more sleep. Anybody else like to do that? I, I like to get more sleep. Uh, number nine, volunteer to help others. We can certainly do that as a part of uh, First Pres. We've got lots of volunteer opportunities to help serve. Travel is number eight. Number seven is interesting, floss. I guess the dentists have finally gotten to the people. Uh, all of their recommendations. Uh, number six, save more money, get out of debt. Of course, from the financial uh, consumer debt that we have in this country, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Number five, accomplish last year's goals. I haven't finished doing what I tried in 14, so I'm going to try and do that in 15. Uh, number four, learn a new language. So, hablas espanol. Uh, number three, go to green, recycle, go paperless when possible. Number two, quit smoking. Number one, lose weight, exercise more. Now, it's interesting, as I was um, researching New Year's resolutions, I came across this list from 1947. I thought it'd be interesting to compare the top 10 New Year's resolutions from 2015 to 1947. So look at these from 1947. Number 10, remember last year, it was this year it's lose weight, number one, exercise more. Number 10 back then was lose, in fact, some people wanted to gain weight. So obviously we've changed a little bit there. Uh, take a greater role in home life. Take better care of my health. Be more efficient. Number six, be more religious. Go to church more. Haven't seen that on a top 10 New Year's resolutions list for a long time. Number five, drink less. Number four, save more money. Number three, stop smoking. Number two, improve my character. 
And number one, become more understanding. Control my temper. Any of these New Year's resolutions on your New Year's resolutions for uh, 2015? I really like number six. It says, be more religious, go to church more. That didn't seem to make anyone's list in 2015. In fact, I didn't see any religious uh, uh, goals in uh, top ten lists for 2015. Do you have any spiritual goals for 2015? I actually, uh, one of my spiritual goals for 2015 is to go through this uh, new Bible I recently bought. It's this one-year chronological Bible. Now, I every year read through the Bible. Uh, normally, I read from Genesis to Revelation. If you read uh, three, just between three and four chapters a day, you'll read the entire Bible in one year. And so that's kind of a good way to, to go about that. And I've done that uh, for many years now. I've read through the ESV and the New King James Version and the Message and the New Revised Standard Version, the NIV and the New NIV and... And so this year, though, I'm going to read through the Chronological Study Bible, which basically uh, has organized the Bible in the order in which it was written. And, uh, you know, we usually read from Genesis to Revelation, but that's not the order in which the Bible was written. In fact, in the New Testament, the first gospel, of course, the first book you find is Matthew. And there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Most biblical scholars will tell you, though, that Mark was actually probably written before Matthew. And every biblical scholar will tell you that the epistles of Paul were written before the Gospels. In fact, uh, most biblical scholars or many biblical scholars will tell you that the first epistle written by the Apostle Paul was Galatians. And Galatians was written around 48 AD to the churches in Galatia. And the Apostle Paul traveled to the region of Galatia uh, during his first missionary journey. And you can read about that in Acts 13 and Acts 14. And as you read Acts 13 and 14, you read about Paul's time in Galatia, you can see that his time in Galatia was anything but easy. In fact, he was persecuted in one city, and so he had to flee to another. In fact, in Lystra, Paul was stoned and left for dead while he was in Lystra, the uh, the region of Galatia. But Paul continued to preach the gospel, the gospel of grace. Paul was so persistent in preaching the gospel of grace because he knew that the gospel of grace ultimately changes everything. So in order for us to understand how the gospel of grace changes everything and should ultimately change our lives, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. It may be found on page 1235 of your pew Bible. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Listen to the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For I am now seeking, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Here ends the reading 
of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me as you pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for your written word inspired by your spirit. Thank you for Paul's letter that we have today. I pray that by your spirit you would continue to open our hearts and minds, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. Now today when we write letters, usually we write, uh, you know, Dear Hugh, or Dear Jimmy, or Dear Jerry. We, we start a letter off and we uh, immediately address who it is we're writing to, and then we write the body of our letter, and then we close by writing, uh, saying sincerely, you know, your name, whoever it is that, uh, who's written the letter. Well, in the ancient times, in ancient uh, times, it was very different, the order. They would first begin by stating who was writing the letter. Then you would describe the recipient of the letter, and then you would offer some kind of greeting. But it's interesting, if you compare this opening of Paul's letter to the Galatians to, like Philippians, you'll see that Paul makes a very uh, long and elaborate explanation of who he is. In Philippians, you read this, Philippians 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Paul didn't have to say much. He had started the church in Philippi. He didn't have to give a long explanation. But in Galatians... He gives this long explanation. He says, Paul, an apostle, not through men, nor, uh, but through, not through man, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, why do you think Paul, who helped start the churches in Galatia, would need to give such an elaborate explanation that he is an apostle, not from man, nor through men, but through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ and God the Father? Why is it so important for Paul to let the Galatians know that he is an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead? Well, the Greek noun for um, apostle comes from the Greek verb apostello, which means to send. So an apostle is a sent one. In the early use of Greek, the word apostle or apostolos was used of a naval expedition commissioned to represent Greek interest in foreign service. Apostles were sent with a specific message. In the Gospel of Mark, we see that Jesus calls his 12 disciples apostles. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verse 14, we read, And he, Jesus, appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. These 12 disciples are called apostles because they were sent to preach with a specific message from Jesus. Now, Paul, of course, was not one of the original 12 disciples, but if you read Acts 9, you'll see that Paul, while he was on the road to Damascus, was blinded, and he was told by Jesus and by God to go and 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 eventually to preach. Paul had had encountered the risen Christ and was called by God to preach a very specific message. But why would Paul need to remind the Galatians that he was an apostle sent by, not by man or by men, but by God? Specifically, Jesus and God the Father. Why does Paul have to remind them? Don't they know that? He spent time with them? Well, Paul had to remind the churches in Galatia that he was an apostle. Because Jewish Christians had recently come to the churches in Galatia, and they were beginning to question Paul's apostleship. 
And even more egregious to Paul, not that they questioned his apostles, but that bothered him, but what even more egregious was the fact or upsetting to Paul was the fact that they began to distort the gospel that Paul had originally preached to the churches in Galatia. These Gentile Christians had been given the gospel of grace, but these Jewish Christians were now coming to the church in Galatia and giving them a very different gospel. They were explaining that that if they wanted to be fully accepted by God, yes, they needed to believe in Jesus, but they also needed to be circumcised. They needed to follow the Mosaic law and follow the food um, requirements and uh, follow the Jewish calendar if they wanted to be fully accepted by God. Now, you see, the Jews back then understood themselves to be God's chosen people, elected by God's sovereign will and grace. However, according to Mosaic law, Their continual acceptance by God was based on their adherence to the Mosaic law. They had to do their part, right? And so a sign of that they were God's covenant people beginning with Abraham was that they uh, were uh, circumcised. And so they believed that if you're going to be accepted by God, and yes, you're now believers of of, of Jesus who was a Jew, you need to become like Jesus who was a Jew. So you need to be circumcised. You need to begin to adhere to the uh, uh, dietary laws and follow the Jewish law calendar. For the Apostle Paul, these simple added requirements were completely contrary to the gospel Paul had preached to the Gentiles. Because the gospel of grace, the gospel of grace that Paul preached to the Gentiles tells us there's nothing more we need to do to be accepted by God. The gospel of grace that Paul preaches we can find in verse 3 and 5 of our text this morning when Paul writes, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Grace. Grace to you. Now, that's a a big word, isn't it? Grace. Grace means God's unmerited favor towards us. The gospel of grace that Paul persistently preached to the Galatians, despite the real threat of death, lets us know that God loves us and accepts us before we ever love Him. The gospel of grace lets us know that our salvation is ultimately a result of God's work. That's why it's grace. It's a gift. Something God has done on our behalf. There's nothing we can do or add to that great gift. For God showed His favor, His unmerited favor towards us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus gave Himself for us as for our sins, as Paul writes in Galatians chapter 1, verse 3. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price for our sins, not because we deserve such a remarkable sacrifice, but because God in his sovereign will chose to send his son to pay the price for our sins with his death on a cross. Amazing grace, God's great gift to us. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. As you know, those words were originally written by John Newton. John Newton was a former captain of a slave ship. And during a 1748 voyage, uh, the ship that Newton was on encountered a severe storm off the coast of Ireland, and it almost sank. Newton, in desperation, cried out to God that God might save him. And then miraculously... The cargo in the ship suddenly shifted and stopped up the hole that was filling the boat that he was in with water. Newton was able to eventually uh, come back safely into the port. Newton marked this experience, this answer to prayer, as an amazing gift of God's grace. And and he began to 
to read the Bible daily. And, and he, he began to avoid profanity, gambling, and drinking. And it was then that he began to have a conversion towards evangelical Christianity. Eventually, eventually, he abandoned the slave trade and became a minister. And as a minister, he actually was a, a, leading, a leading voice for abolition, the abolishment of slavery in England. And he worked with William Wilberforce, who was a parliamentarian, to help make that happen. John, first, John Newton first used the song Amazing Grace as a part of his New Year's Day sermon on January 1st, 1773. The song d- describes, as we know, John Newton's spiritual journey as a wretch who was rescued by grace. I believe there's a reason Amazing Grace is one of the most popular English hymns today because we can all, in some ways, identify with the idea that we once were lost, but now are found. We were blind, but now we see. The Apostle Paul, like John Newton, knew that it was only by sheer grace that he had been rescued by God, delivered from this present evil age, as the Apostle Paul explains in our text this morning. Now, in the New Testament... Time is divided into two basic eras. There's this age, and there's this age to come. In the age to come, uh, the reign of Christ will be fully realized when Christ returns and makes himself known to all. Today, we live in this present evil age where sin and death still have a very real place in this world. Christ has not yet returned to help conquer it in in its completeness. And so sin and death still have a place on this earth. But in the age to come, Christ will come back and return and, and, and all will be made right. But until then, we live in this present evil age where people in their pride often ignore God or in their pride, they try to earn their way to God through their own efforts. Jesus came to rescue us from that, this present evil age. When the Jewish Christians of the first century taught the Gentile Christians in Galatia that they needed to be circumcised to be fully accepted by God, they were distorting the gospel of grace that Paul had first preached to them. Whenever we add something to God's message, God's gospel of grace, whenever we try to add something to grace, it becomes work. When people tell us that we have to to do something rather than simply accept God's grace as the free gift that it is, we've lost the essence of grace. Grace is a gift, not a payment for a job well done. We are accepted first, according to grace. Then, out of gratitude for what God has done for us, we seek to obey. It's not our obedience that leads to our acceptance. No, we're accepted first, according to the gospel of grace, and then we seek to obey. Grace lets us know that we are loved and accepted regardless of what we've done. Because the gospel of grace is ultimately about what Jesus has done for us, not what we have to do. Of course, we're all Presbyterian, right? We know that, right? We came from the Reformation. The cry of the Reformation was grace alone, faith alone, Scripture alone, glory to God alone. We were saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. And Scripture alone is our authority and faith in life as we seek to bring glory to God alone. We all know that, right? We're saved by grace, right? We get that. I want to invite you to watch this YouTube video that's got 28 million people who've watched it, trending very high in our culture today. religion. What if I told you voting Republican really wasn't his mission? 
What if I told you Republican doesn't automatically mean Christian, and just because you call some people blind doesn't automatically give you vision? I mean, if religion is so great, why has it started so many wars? Why does it build huge churches but fails to feed the poor? Tell single moms God doesn't love them if they've ever had a divorce, but in the Old Testament, God actually calls religious people whores. Religion might preach grace, but another thing they practice, tend to ridicule God's people, they did it to John the Baptist. They can't fix their problems, and so they just mask it, not realizing religion's like spraying perfume on a casket. See, the problem with religion is it never gets to the core. It's just behavior modification, like a long list of chores. Like, let's dress up the outside, they can look nice and neat, but it's funny, that's what they used to do to mummies while the corpse rots underneath. Now I ain't judging, I'm just saying, quit putting on a fake look. Because there's a problem if people only know that you're a Christian by your Facebook. I mean, in every other aspect of life, you know that logic's unworthy. It's like saying you play for the Lakers just because you bought a jersey. See, this was me too, but no one seemed to be on to me. Acting like a church kid while addicted to pornography. See, on Sunday I'd go to church, but Saturday getting faded, acting if I was simply created to just have sex and get wasted. See, I spent my whole life building this facade of neatness, but now that I know Jesus, I boast in my weakness. Because if grace is water, then the church should be an ocean. It's not a museum for good people, it's a hospital for the broken. Which means I don't have to hide my failure, I don't have to hide my sin. Because it doesn't depend on me, it depends on Him. See, because when I was God's enemy, and certainly not a fan, He looked down and said, I want that man. Which is why Jesus hated religion, and for it he called them fools. Don't you see so much better than just following some rules? Now let me clarify. I love the church, I love the Bible, and yes, I believe in sin. But if Jesus came to your church, would they actually let him in? See, remember he was called a glutton and a drunkard by religious men. But the Son of God never supports self-righteousness, not now, not then. Now back to the point, one thing is vital to mention. How Jesus and religion are on opposite spectrums. See, one's the work of God, but one's a man-made invention. See, one is the cure, but the other's the infection. See, because religion says do. Jesus says done. Religion says slave. Jesus says son. Religion puts you in bondage, but Jesus sets you free. Religion makes you blind, but Jesus makes you see. And that's why religion and Jesus are two different things. Religion is man searching for God. Christianity is God searching for man. That's why salvation is freely mine, and forgiveness is my own. Not based on my merits, but Jesus' obedience alone. Because he took the crown of thorns and the blood dripped down his face. He took what we all deserve. I guess that's why you call it grace. And while being murdered, he yelled, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Because when he was dangling on that cross, he was thinking of you. And he absorbed all your sin, and he buried it in the tomb, which is why I'm kneeling at the cross saying, come on, there's room. So for religion, no, I hate it. In fact, I literally resent it. Because when Jesus said, it is finished, I believe he meant it. Twenty-eight million people have watched that video on YouTube. Anybody else? Did y'all see that before? It's the first time? You'd seen it. Good, good for you, Susan, being in touch with the, our culture. If you want to know what our culture's thinking, and it, you ought to go to YouTube every now and then, just see like most popular, and you'll see what's trending. It's interesting to me that this video was watched 28 million times, and even more, it continues to grow. It obviously speaks to some truth to the hearts of many people, that through their perception, the church has been communicating religion rather than 
Christ. We know that the gospel of grace is all about what Jesus has done, and yet somehow we tend to emphasize what people need to do. You know, in our culture today as Americans, we measure our sense of self and our success often based on what we do, don't we? When we're in school, we measure our success based on the grades we get, based on the work we do. When we're in business, we measure our success based on the sales we make or the profit margin we have. We base everything on what we do. But the gospel of grace is about what Jesus has done. Somewhere along the way, we as the church have begun to send a mixed message. The gospel of grace changes everything because the gospel of grace teaches us that we're accepted not by what we do, but by what Christ has done. The gospel of grace lets us know that we're accepted by God regardless of what we have done. And there's nothing we can do to make God love us or accept us anymore. As much as we may want to spend time in prayer and read God's word so that we might grow in our relationship with God, the reality is that none of that makes God, makes God love us anymore. It helps us grow, but God loves us and he accepts us fully. And he's shown the full extent of his love and that he sent his son here to this earth as we just celebrated on Christmas, ultimately to die on a cross for our sins. And there is no greater love than that. So in light of God's grace, in light of the gospel of grace, how should we as the church now live today? Well, as recipients of God's grace, we have to be people of grace, don't we? Out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us, we should extend grace to others. The gospel of grace reminds us that we're all sinners in need of God's grace, God's amazing grace. And so we should be people of grace and not judgment. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we condone every form of behavior, but ultimately we are people of grace and forgiveness and love. As Paul will explain later in Galatians, led by the Spirit, we should be people of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As I shared at the very beginning of our message, the number one goal in 1947, the number one New Year's resolution was to become more understanding and to control my temper. The only way we will ever become more understanding, more peaceful, is if we seek to be led by the Holy Spirit and we remember how much grace God has already given to us. We focus our hearts and minds on the grace of God that we find in Jesus Christ. We can't help but be people of grace God's grace, God's love, and God's favor can't help but be extended to others. As we think about New Year's resolutions for 2015, what if we made the resolution that we would pray each and every day that God might use us to be an instrument of His grace in the things that we say and do? Yes, grace is it's truly amazing. And guided by the Holy Spirit, we need to share that with others. In 2015, may we take the time we need each and every day to pray that the Holy Spirit will lead us to share God's grace with others. So that as the Apostle Paul wrote in verse 5 of our text this morning, so that God might receive the glory forever and ever. Amen.
Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks for your amazing grace that saved a wretch like each one of us. That while we were lost, you made yourself known to us. You became one of us. You're born as a baby in a lowly manger. You grew up among us. You taught us. You healed us. And ultimately, you died for us. And there's nothing we can do to add to your great sacrifice. There's nothing else we need to do to to be accepted by you. For you have shown your acceptance and love for us through your son's death. And we just simply need to receive it as a gift through faith. Oh, God, I pray that in response to your amazing grace, we might be people of grace who offer grace and forgiveness to those around us. That guided by your Holy Spirit, we might be people of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Oh Lord, in response to your grace, may we take the time we need each and every day to pray that your Holy Spirit would lead us to be instruments of your grace so that others may see our good deeds and give praises to you, our Father who's in heaven. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.